Today, some of our best segments from the global lane. Ireland was once a nation where almost everyone went to church. Now, in parts of the country, almost no one does. So what happened? Dale heard reports from Dublin on Ireland's Christian legacy and why it isn't over yet. If there's a symbol of what happened to faith in Ireland, it might be this. The Church of the Annunciation just outside of Dublin. It's one of the largest church buildings in Ireland, and it's about to be knocked down because so few people attend services. Anyone in Ireland over 50 can still remember a nation where almost everyone went to church. But today, live in a nation where in some areas, almost no one goes to church. The Christian faith that has dominated Ireland for centuries died with surprising speed. And as one leader put it, today for the Irish, God has become irrelevant. They not only walked away from the church, they legalized same-sex marriage, abortion, and elected an openly gay prime minister. Nick Park heads Ireland's Evangelical Alliance. It was very much a cultural religion. Well, they were Catholic because they were Irish, and the two were seen as synonymous. We were very arrogant as a church. Patty Monaghan helps lead the Evangelical Catholic Initiative. Uh, sadly, it's taken to two referendums uh, that we both that lost, one on same-sex marriage, one on abortion, to bring home to the Catholic Church in Ireland that they're now a minority church. Church buildings abandoned, some Catholic seminaries almost empty. One clergyman wrote that the battle for faith in Ireland has been lost. But a new church is rising. This is the largest church in Ireland, and it is Romanian Pentecostal. The worshippers at Batania or Bethany Church came to Ireland to find work, but now realize they were sent to Ireland as missionaries. Batania Church is exploding. It's building a new $5.5 million facility on faith, one that will accommodate 1,500 worshippers. I met two of its pastors at the construction site. We're praying for this country. We're fasting for this country, and I think God has a plan with us to be a blessing for this country and more people to know God and to be saved in this country because God loves Ireland. Now we realize God has a greater plan, a bigger purpose for our lives to deliver his message and his kingdom works for this country. In fact, the second largest church in Ireland is also Romanian Pentecostal. Batania pastor Georgia remembers when nations like Ireland sent Bibles to communist Romania. And those Bibles are coming back now. African churches are also growing. The Nigerian Redeemed Christian Church of God has grown to more than 100 churches in Ireland with several thousand members. And even though most Irish have rejected the institutional church, Polls show many still believe the core of the gospel. Among Irish youth, uh, I think it's something like 70% of them said they really believed Jesus rose from the dead. They really believed in heaven and hell. They really believed that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. So you've still got these very high rates of belief in the facts of the gospel. When we were choked by religion uh, and institutionalism, there wasn't much life. But now that we have those institutions crumbling, I think that we're in the land of opportunity. Monaghan says the spirit is moving in some Catholic churches as well. 
do know there's, there's a spiritual awakening happening in this country. And some parish priests are really becoming born again, filled with the Holy Spirit and getting a vision for what's possible. There's that spiritual heritage within this nation that I believe the enemy, Satan, wants to destroy. But there's, I, I believe it's going to happen again. Ireland, once a mission field, then a base for missions, has become a mission field again. Dale Hurd joins us now via Skype with more. Dale, how did Ireland leave the faith so quickly? Well, you know, they did studies uh, back when Ireland was very religious, and it showed that uh, the faith wasn't very deep. Ireland is about, you know, the Irish are about relationship and community, and I think the Catholic Church was a part of that. And then when these scandals just rocked the nation, terrible scandals involving children, you know, there was nothing to hold the Irish there. They were, they were through. Many debate whether Europe is really post-Christian because we're seeing great moves of God in many places. Is it post-Christian? Boy, you get a, get a room of uh, Christian leaders from Europe together and that'll start a fight. Um, there, there are great things are happening, as you say, but the culture has been lost. I mean, we're talking about nations that were completely Christian, more or less. And, and now, in many cases, almost no one goes to church. And so, you know, while God is moving, they've lost the culture. We have instances in nations like Britain that are in, officially Christian, persecuting Christians. And it's the only group that they pick on are Christians, and they're a Christian nation. And we have this all across Europe, the story of the Finnish member of parliament who faces prison for simply tweeting verses from Romans condemning homosexuality. Do you think this is going to get worse, Dale? What's the future of Christianity in Europe? I think persecution will get worse. There's nothing to keep Europe from persecuting Christians because it's unmoored from standards, you know, traditional standards of law. It's, it's whatever, you know, makes it feel better, it does. And right now it sees Christianity as oppressive. But I believe in the Great Commission. I believe in the irrevocable calls of God on Europe and on many of these nations. And Europeans are empty spiritually. And so there is the, there's the turf there for a, a major mass revival, and many are praying for it. And what really stood out to me in your piece, I mean, many things, but uh, the fact that Bibles were sent from Ireland uh, to Romania during the Cold War, and now those Bibles are coming back. Not just the Bibles, but the missionaries. It's called the Great Reflex, and this was the prayer of early missionaries like William Carey and David Livingston, that the people of Africa and Asia from these mission fields would one day carry the gospel back to Europe. Well, it seems like now's the time and now's the day. Yeah. Dale, yeah. another excellent report. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Gary. President Trump has taken on China's unfair trade advantage, but what about defense and national security? Well, our next guest believes the China threat is growing. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding is author of the book Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. He's a former China strategist for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. What should be our greater concern when it comes to China? What I wrote about in my book is the is a very uh, stealthy way that they go about using globalization and the internet to insinuate themselves in every democratic institution within the United States, even to the point where suppressing speech and suppressing religion is, is something that they can do uh, really at will.
Well, I, I want to talk about that some more specifics uh, in a moment. But President Trump says that he's been in touch with Chinese President Xi Jinping about the coronavirus, that they're friends, they have a good relationship. So how do you see this viral outbreak affecting U.S.-China relations? Well, I think it's more affecting the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So what's finally happening within China is the Chinese people are beginning to wake up and understand what kind of regime they live under. Of course, they've been quarantined to their apartments. Some have actually been locked in their apartments to die. I think, uh, you know, the United States and, and other democracies have, democracies have come to know uh, things like the uh, concentration camps in Xinjiang and the forced organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience that has been illuminated by the UK tribunal. But the people of China have essentially been kept in the dark. And so for the first time, they're actually beginning to see the true nature of the regime, which has led to widespread um, dissent within the country for the first time, uh, really since the Tiananmen uh, Square massacre. Now, the president's fiscal year 2021 budget, I think, keeps the defense budget about the same, around $740 billion. What will that mean for the national defense strategy that prioritizes China? Well, I think one of the, the major things to have happened policy-wise in the United States is last August we pulled out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was a treaty between Russia and the United States. Now, what that treaty said was the United States couldn't build intermediate-range ballistic or cruise missiles, but the Russians were violating it, and the Chinese have uh, used the fact that they weren't a signatory to build thousands, literally thousands, of intermediate-range ballistic and cruise missiles that are conventionally armed, some are nuclear-armed, in the region, which really puts our forces, uh, like carrier battle groups, and our bases, our air bases in the region, at, uh, under threat. And what we needed to do was really begin to build some of those weapons ourselves because, it, because they are quite effective and efficient at creating deterrence. They are taking our innovation, our technology, our talent and capital and using it to build up their science and technology capability and their manufacturing capability. And so not just building weapons or buying weapons is what the United States need to do. Rather, it needs to begin to invest in infrastructure and in manufacturing and science and technology and STEM education. By the way, these are all things that the Eisenhower administration did during the beginning of the Cold War, which led to our victory. So the national security strategy really talks about changing the equation. Stop giving all of our technology, our innovation, our talent, and our capital to the Chinese to build up their power. Let's begin to invest in America and the American people. And I'm hopeful that in the, uh, the next administration, we'll begin to uh, put in some of those measures in place. Well, I know in his State of the Union address, the president said he's committed to building the newest branch of the U.S. military. That's the U.S. Space Force. The Russians are shadowing our spy satellites in space. So how concerned should we be about outer space warfare with the Russians or the Chinese? Within their region, very concerned because we don't have any of the same ground or air-based assets that the Chinese Communist Party has built in the region. And so that really makes our space base assets vulnerable. But even more insidious is this ability to uh, influence Americans at the individual level, particularly after 2016. We saw the Russians use AI bots, artificial intelligence bots, um, social media networks and big data analysis to create protests throughout the United States. The Chinese are perfecting these technologies and techniques as well, and it really creates a, a challenge for democracies today. Cybersecurity, a big issue right here in the U.S. Okay, U.S. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, 
author, former China strategist for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and senior fellow of the Hudson Institute. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you. American popular culture is steadily being inundated with pro-LGBTQ messages. Marvel is pushing an on-screen same-sex kiss in a movie out next fall. HGTV has announced it plans to feature a thruple in its House Hunter series. That show will feature a married man and a woman who have two kids and are in a relationship with another woman who lives with them. And then there's AOC. The New York Congresswoman recently pledged allegiance to the drag on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars show. I'm Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I pledge allegiance to the drag. Here to set us straight on these cultural influences from the LGBTQ community is George Carneal. Raised by a Southern Baptist minister, Mr. Corneal spent 25 years immersed in the homosexual lifestyle. He is author of the new book, From Queer to Christ, My Journey into the Light. So, George, tell us, why is this onslaught from the LGBTQ community occurring in our culture at this time? It seems they've gone from fighting for societal tolerance to indoctrination, demanding that uh, our culture embrace a minority lifestyle. I think it's going to continue to get worse. I knew when they opened the floodgates, it's never going to be enough really until we look at the bigger picture of what the agenda is really about. And that is silencing Christians and all opposition to this agenda and anything that is pro-family, pro-Christian, pro-life, pro-America. Uh, it's just an agenda that's going to keep going until they can silence everyone. Well, ex explain to us then, how is it that you uh, raised by a Southern Baptist minister, a father, uh, came to embrace a gay lifestyle. Well, my journey was, uh, I really struggled with a lot of um, bullying when I was a kid. There was a disconnect with my male peers, and because of the demands of my father's ministry, and he wasn't around a lot, I think there was something in me that was missing male affection and male bonding. So when I first, and I went through a lot of bullying, so when I first stepped into a gay bar at 18, it was the first time that men were looking at me differently and treating me differently. I wasn't getting the negative attention, but it was a positive attention. And it really became addicting because for someone who really didn't have that for 18 years of their life, uh, I just qu quickly became addicted to that life and it just descended within three years. Uh, by that point, I was already battling drugs and alcohol, depression. I had a sex addiction. I was a prostitute, and I attempted suicide, and it would still be 22 more years before God would finally get me out of that life. There's a growing effort in states around the nation right now to adopt legislation prohibiting counseling that attempts to bring gays and lesbians out of the homosexual lifestyle. Your thoughts on that? Should we have laws banning conversion therapy? Absolutely not. The way they tell it, they, they act as if every counselor out there is doing harm to an LGBT individual, and it's not the case. I've worked with both secular and Christian counselors, and everyone has been respectful of my journey, what I've been struggling with, even my faith. I have not had anyone harm me, and I've been through lots of therapy with lots of therapists. What they need to understand is there are LGBT individuals who do not want these feelings, and they want help getting that healing and wholeness that they want so they can have a family and children that is their desire and they have every right to seek out whatever kind of counseling they need to get that healing and wholeness the lgbt activists and even government the government does not have the right to step in and mandate and dictate that we have to be saddled with these feelings and i'm sure just like you many gays george uh, you at one time 
uh, viewed Christians as intolerant enemies. So how should churches and Christians respond then to gay members in their congregations? For me, I really hated Christians. I had such a, a, a negative view of them, and I had really been hurt by them because a lot of them give the narrative that God created AIDS to kill the fags. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to get rid of the homosexuals. You hear all of, hear all of the perverted stuff, and then they'll say uh, all fags are going to hell. And this really stole any hope that I had in my own life of trying to, to, to think or believe that God was really an ally. And it was really God slowly immersing me back into the church, but with Christians who truly had the heart of Christ that allowed me a safe place to go and just sit with them. And I wasn't harassed or bullied or mistreated, but it was sitting under the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of pastors who had the guts to speak the truth of God's word. And I knew that by the Christians in my own life who were loving and who invested time in me and poured love into me, that really gave me a lot of food for thought, and God started to expose the lies of the LGBT activists, including the liberal theologians who pushed the gay is okay narrative. And after I had to work through the lies and God deprogrammed me of those lies and gave me the healing that I need, it gave me the strength to walk out of that life. The Episcopal Church just ordained its first lesbian bishop, Bonnie Perry. Should people who are openly homosexual be in leadership positions in churches? Absolutely not. And that goes for heterosexuals who are sleeping outside of marriage or they're living with someone and they're unmarried. No, there's a godly, there's a way that we are supposed to live our lives that God calls us to do in his word. And unless we are meeting those standards, not that anyone's perfect, but we should really be, really be doing our best to live a godly life because we are an influence on others. And not only that, we are representing God. So no, they should not be allowed. And finally, George, how should Christians then respond to these LGBTQ influences that we're now seeing in movies, films, politics, culture? What's your advice? My advice is, is I know Hollywood is glamorizing it and they are getting, giving a sanitized version of what homosexuality is. But until you sit down and listen to the testimonies of every gay, lesbian, and transgender individual who has come out of that life and you listen to the horror stories of what we've been through, and the reality of that life, which I share in my book. It's not X-rated, but I don't sugarcoat it. But the life is so different from what Hollywood and what the media portray. And so when a Christian affirms this, they think that they're doing the most loving thing, but you're not, you're not only hurting that individual, and you're pushing them into a life of where they're not going to find any peace, happiness, or contentment, but they are, you are pushing them into further rebellion against God. And I've seen the casualties of that life. And I'm warning Christians to stop affirming this. Tell them the truth in love. And just so you'll know, in the back of my book, I put all of the talking points that the LGBT activists and the Christian liberal theologians use. And I debunk that with scripture. So if you have individuals who in your life who are not willing to listen to this, give them the book or at least get it and familiarize yourself with those talking points. So when they do come at you and say, no, 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 it's okay you can give them scripture because they are not going to sit down and study God's word to get the truth for themselves. Okay, the book is From Queer to Christ, My Journey into the Light. George Carneal, thank you for sharing your time and insights. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Asya Bibi, the Pakistani Christian mother who spent more than nine years in prison on charges of committing blasphemy, told the online French Catholic news service, Alatea, she prayed daily and read the Bible regularly during her imprisonment. 
She says her suffering was a trial sent by God. She explained that Psalm 91 encouraged her the most during her incarceration. The Lord is my refuge. Although radical Muslims still threaten her life, Bibi says she hopes someday to return to Pakistan. She says she'd like people to work together to end the country's blasphemy law. This law has become a tool of radicals and those who want to level charges against anyone they don't like, especially if there's a property dispute, argument, or disagreement. The accuser yells, blasphemer. Crowds gather around, the accused is arrested, considered guilty without any solid evidence against them. Judges are intimidated, threatened with death if they rule in favor of the accused. It's only when cases go to the Pakistani Supreme Court when we see acquittals, like the one in the case of Asya Bibi. But also in the case of Asya Bibi, the innocent defendant often remains in prison for years before they're finally freed. And sometimes militants kill them upon release. During the period 1987 to 2017, 238 Christians were jailed on blasphemy charges in Pakistan. But guess what? 516 Ahmadis and 720 other Muslims were also imprisoned. Yes, Christians have been singled out because while there have been nearly 500 fewer blasphemy cases for them compared to Muslims, Christians are only about 2% of the Pakistani population. A bit disproportionate, don't you think? And while the blasphemy law needs to go, and many Pakistanis support removing the law from the books, few will stick their neck out and be advocates for change. Muslim governor of Punjab, Salman Taseer, did that. He was assassinated in 2011. What then is the solution? Perhaps a new law that would imprison anyone who falsely accuses another Pakistani of blasphemy. That may be the best Asya Bibi and other Pakistanis could hope for at this time. Bibi says her greatest joy has been bowing down to the greatness of God. So let's join her in bowing down to the greatness of God. Let's continue to pray for Asya and her family. And let's not forget to pray for Christians and others unfairly imprisoned in Pakistan and elsewhere around the world. Pray that God's justice prevails. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.